Exodus, chapters 1 and 2. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now, a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, After Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. 
The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He said, he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. This is God's word. Good evening. My name's Matt Banks. For those whom I haven't met, it's nice to see some new faces here tonight. As you'll have gathered, tonight we start a new series in the book of Exodus. Now tonight, as we start the book of Exodus, the issue before us is this. Will we allow God to address us? Will we allow God the freedom, if you like, of self-representation? Will we allow God to tell us what he is like? So it seems to me uh, in our lives, or we watch um, the stuff we see around us, we give, I'm going to call them small g gods. We give small g gods a lot of airtime. I think. Uh, career, relationships, security, beauty, comfort, acceptance. Small G gods, if you like, that are often good things in and of themselves, but often we put them in the kind of ultimate place of saying, if only I had this, then I'd be happy, then I'd have contentment, then I'd have purpose, then I'd have meaning. Small, small G-gods that are, that are good things often in and of themselves, but it kind of goes wrong when we put them in God's place as the thing of most importance in our lives. Small G-gods that demand our worship, our time, our money, our allegiance. Small G-gods that, that sort of allure us, saying, if only you could worship me enough, if only you could give enough of your thought time and your energies to me, then I would make you happy. Small G-gods, we're going to call them. As we go through this book of Exodus, God's voice is going to boom out from the book saying, you shall have no other gods before me. Will we allow God to address us? 
You see, God says you shall have no other gods before me, not because he's some kind of insecure egomaniac, but because it is the greatest affront to his majesty that we could dare worship anything as over and above him. That's the first reason why he says you shall have no other gods before me. And the second one is because he is such a passionate lover of our souls that he will not allow us to waste ourselves, to spend ourselves pursuing these these small g-gods when he knows that what they promise is illusory and won't stand the weight of real life. And in Exodus... God is going to confidently and compassionately announce himself as the one who is to be the exclusive object of our worship. Exodus is God confidently and compassionately announcing himself as the exclusive object of our worship. So that's where we'll be going with the whole series. But where are we at the beginning of Exodus? Well, I hope you notice that really Exodus is kind of Genesis Season two, hope you spot. Oh, thanks. I got one laugh for that. That's, that'll do. That'll, thanks, Leah. Look, uh, first five verses, page 58. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, Joseph was already in Egypt. And that Joseph already in Egypt, that links it right back into the story of Genesis, where they went down to Egypt to avoid the famine. But there is actually, although it is Genesis season two, there is quite a time gap between the events that took place in Genesis and the main action in the book of Exodus. So we get a hint of that, chapter one, verse six. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. And it sounds like as if it's just the next generation, but actually... Uh, when you read other bits of the Bible, you realize that there's, there's a 400-year gap between what we heard in Genesis and what we're going to hear described in the book of Exodus. And we read verse 8. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. You see, over those long 400 years, the king, or the pharaoh, use those words interchangeably, A king arose who was forgotten that Joseph, back in his day, actually had been the sort of vice president or or sort of equivalent or whatever to the pharaoh of his time. A pharaoh has now arisen who has forgotten that in that position that Joseph occupied, he was kind of the architect of financial and social stability and kind of plotted the course for, for Egypt through the famine. But the pharaoh has forgotten all that. And by the beginning of the book of Exodus, those original 70, Jacob, you know, 12 sons, those Israelites, those 70 who were held in such high regard by the Pharaoh of, of Joseph's day, well, that's long forgotten in the kind of collective national conscience of the people of Egypt. And indeed, those original 70 who came down to Egypt, they're now no, they're now no longer 70, they're a nation. but a nation in slavery. So that's where we start the book of Exodus. Not great. 
And many of us are going to be familiar with the grand um, events to come, you know, apocalyptic plagues, uh, parting of the Red Sea, fire on Mount Sinai, events that will define the nation of Israel, you know, in the same way that uh, stories of World War II in some sense define us, but far more so. In these two chapters, as we begin this evening, we're going to have a foretaste of what will come as the drama unfolds. And the first thing we're going to see, this is where we're going to spend most of our time, is this, that God, not Pharaoh, will be famous for his power. This is God confidently and compassionately announcing what he is like. And the first thing we're going to learn is that God, not Pharaoh, will be famous for his power. Do you guys know that, um, I think it's early December, new film, Christian Bale film, is coming out, Moses of Gods and Kings. You heard that's coming out? Can't wait. Christian Bale's awesome. Just imagine him in his kind of deep, gravelly voice. No Pharaoh, I'm Batman. <laughs> no, seriously, the, uh, the trailer for it, the trailer for it begins... Um, uh, when, when men ruled as gods. And look, they did. Pharaoh, Pharaoh was kind of regarded as sort of, uh, a demigod, really, part god, whose word was law, who was the establishment, who had the power of life and death. You know, the lives of those in Egypt would have orbited round Pharaoh, I guess, in the same way that uh, our lives orbit around the, the institutions or the people of power today, the media, the scientific dogma, the international money markets, the job markets, the university. Pharaoh holds the position of power in Egypt. But he uses that power to keep the Hebrews in slavery. A slavery, if you look, largely motivated by, I assume, economic concerns. Have a look. Did you notice that? Verse 9. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous from us for us. Verse 10. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. He wants them in the land for cheap outsourcing of labor to keep consumer spending high. But not too many of them. Well, they're going to rebel. And so Pharaoh turns up the heat on their slavery. Verse 11. So the Egyptians put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. And it's beautiful. Pharaoh seeks to oppress them. But verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The lesson here is that God, not Pharaoh, has power. And look, you see, the Hebrew population growth isn't just because mummy and daddy Israelite didn't have much to do in the evening, all right? It's a sign of God at work. You see, way back when, we'll look at, we'll look a bit 
back at Genesis later, but way back when, in Genesis 22, God promised Abraham, the great granddad of those original 70 who came down to Egypt, God promised Abraham way back when that God would make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. So here, when we read about the Israelites spreading and becoming multitudinous, we see that God has begun to do that. God, not Pharaoh, is powerful. A Pharaoh won't be thwarted so easily. His next act is a barbaric act of arrogant state-sponsored infanticide. It is, it is grotesque. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew windwives, whose names, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stall, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Wicked. We don't know whether those women were Israelites who, who served their own community. Or whether they were, or whether they were Egyptians who served the Hebrew community. The text isn't entirely clear. But what is clear is that again, Pharaoh has not factored in God. Verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And look, I've got a lot of respect for midwives. When our little baby girl was born a few months ago, the midwife was was great. She totally owned it. It was brilliant. But I don't know about you. I, I think if you sort of said to someone, oh, who, who are the real movers and shakers in society? They're not going to say midwives. I say, there's no, there's no disrespect to midwives. But I don't think midwives are, are the movers and shakers in society. And so this is, this is a comedy scene. You have this kind of comedy scene between Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and a couple of midwives. And they're hoodwinked by the ridiculous lie that the midwives make up. Verse 19. Oh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Now look, just little in brackets, this isn't commending lying. I think this passage commends that the, that the midwives feared God. Uh, I think you could say that they got the kind of outworking wrong, but the, the main point is they feared God. That is what is commended. And you can kind of, I like to imagine Pharaoh beginning to blush as the, as the midwives offer to go on in gory detail about what does happen when women give birth. And he's like, no, 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 okay, I'll, I'll take your word for it, I'll take your word for it. Verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. See, Pharaoh has determined death. God has brought life. God, not Pharaoh, is powerful. And so for his next attempt to subdue the Israelites, uh, Pharaoh now co-opts the whole population of Egypt into his plans. Look at this, verse, verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every boy that is born, You must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So that's the kind of statewide murderous edict. And then the text focuses in 
on just one family trying to avoid that awful edict. So we begin chapter 2. Moses' mother can only hide her, her, her beautiful boy from the murderous Egyptians for so long, but then she must do the heartbreaking thing of putting him in the waterproof basket and entrusting him to God. She pushes him into the reeds on the bank of the Nile. But again, we see that it is God, not Pharaoh, who is powerful here. Pharaoh wants to keep the Israelites in bondage. <laughs> the man who is, the baby boy who is going to grow up into the man who leads the Israelites out of bondage is rescued by who? Pharaoh's daughter. God is at work here. And Pharaoh is further outplayed by Moses' sister, who's kind of watching at a distance, and with great presence of mind, she says, verse 7, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? And then she goes off and brings Moses' own mum to do it. And Moses' mum even gets paid for looking after Moses. God, not Pharaoh, is powerful. And that is what God wants you and I to know as we study the book of Exodus. Well, we're going to see far mightier acts than this as the story unfolds. And you know, at least six times through the book, God, the Lord, is going to tell us that as he displays these mighty acts, the result will be that the Egyptians and the Israelites will know that he alone is God. In the book of Exodus, God is confidently and compassionately announcing himself as the exclusive object of our worship. And we get a foretaste of that in these first two chapters as we begin to see that. So God, not Pharaoh, will be famous for his power. And we also get a hint of how God is going to do that. And that is our second point tonight. God will deliver his people through Moses. God will deliver his people through Moses. And so we're back to that beautiful three-month-old pushed off into the reeds of the Nile by his mother. But what was he, what was he put in? It's a basket, okay. Verse three. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. A basket. Or actually, more literally, that word is a box. A box made waterproof with tar and pitch. Any alarm bells going to remind you of anything? What about if I told you that Hebrew word for box is the same as the word for the Ark of Noah? And in fact, the only two times in the whole of the Bible that that word is used is here and in the story about Noah's Ark. And remember that... The ark was God saving his people from the punishment of the great flood. And here that same word reappears. A hint that God is going to again save his people. And this time save his people out of the bondage to slavery in Egypt. We're not yet standing on the banks of the Red Sea. Looking at the waters crush the chariots of the Egyptians as God rescues his people. 
But here, as we see this child, the one who's going to rescue, God is going to use to rescue his people, being saved out of the water through an ark, we get a little, we get a picture that God is at work to rescue. And then there's another hint of this, verses 11 and 12, where uh, Moses stands up to the oppression of his people, the, the cruel Egyptian foreman, and um, I think you've got to say, ultimately wrongly, takes justice into his own hands and kills him. But nevertheless, a picture, a picture of what Moses is going to do. Deliver his people. Stand up to the Egyptians for how they are oppressing them. His efforts, though, are not appreciated by his countrymen in verse 14. Uh, actually, this again, sadly, is another foretaste of what is going to come. Moses' countrymen are not going to appreciate him. But in verse 14, he's chased off into exile in Midian. And then what happens there? Well, seven daughters of Ruel, a.k.a. Jethro, the priest of Midian, come to draw water. Look, verse 17. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. And when they get back, Drewel, they say, uh, an Egyptian, this is verse 19, an Egyptian, wrong, it's Moses, he's an Israelite, never mind. An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And look, here we're just talking about some kind of minor dispute with shepherds and water and sheep, and in a sense, who cares, in one sense. But that word in both verse 17 and verse 19 is the word, that word rescue. That is the word that is going to be used time and time and time again throughout the rest of the book of Exodus for God's mighty act of rescue and deliverance of his people. And he will use Moses again to accomplish that rescue. Again, we're not yet around Mount Sinai. The people have not yet been delivered from slavery. But here is a foretaste of what is going to happen. God will deliver and he'll do it through Moses. So look, God, not Pharaoh, will be famous for his power. Everyone will know this because God will deliver his people through Moses. But why? Why ultimately is God going to do this? Thirdly, because God will be faithful to his covenant. I think I've got it slightly. I've got it. God has committed himself to his covenant. You could say God will be faithful to his covenant. So end of verse, end of verse 22, we leave Moses in exile in the land of Midian with his wife and young son. But nothing back in Egypt has improved for Moses' countrymen. Verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. Nothing's changed yet. See, because here is where the story really begins. Here is where it gets wonderful. Here is where the beat kicks in, if you like. 
end of verse 23, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. Not remember it as in, oh, he'd forgotten it and suddenly it kind of, he found it under the sofa, but remembered it as in, he's brought it to mind for the express purpose of acting. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Literally, God looked on the Israelites and he knew. God heard, God remembered, God looked, and God knew. Four glorious, glorious verbs. God heard, he remembered, he looked, and he knew. Oh, we've seen hints of what God is going to do, but he's going to do so much more. All flowing from his faithfulness to the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, Pharaoh may have forgotten Joseph. The sons and daughters to sons and daughters of Israel to Pharaoh just look like a mass of Hebrew slaves to be used and abused as he wishes. But God has not forgotten. God remembers. God remembers not just Joseph. But Joseph's dad, Jacob, his grandfather, Isaac, and the father of them all, Abraham. God remembers the promise he made to them all through Abraham. That's what a covenant is, uh, a solemn promise that God makes to his people as he calls them into relationship with him. God has not forgotten. Let's have a look. uh, We have this up on screen. This is from Genesis 17. Abraham fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. The whole land of Canaan I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. That is the promise that God is going to be faithful to. Three elements, if you like, to it. People, land, um, blessings or relationship. The chief blessing always for us as Christians is the relationship we have with God. That is what God remembers. Because up to this point, how are we doing on those three things? People, land and, and relationship. Well, people, we've already said, wonderfully, the people have grown and they've multiplied and that's brilliant. Ah, oh, but you're in, they're in slavery. That's terrible. Are they in the land of Canaan? No. They had to leave the land of Canaan to go to Egypt during the famine. Do they enjoy the blessings of relationship with God? Is God their God? Well, yes, he is. He's never stopped being their God. But he's been silent these 400 long years. Oh, but he hasn't forgotten. And he won't forget. In these first two chapters, we've seen hints of what God is about to do. He will show that he, not Pharaoh, is powerful. He will deliver his people through Moses, and he will be faithful to his covenant. The exodus has begun. God has begun to announce to everyone what he is like. 
but there's much more to come. Let's come back next week. But as we finish, I wonder how, how we can relate this to us. I wonder if we sort of found, find ourselves in a little bit in a similar position to if you can imagine the people in, in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. We've begun to see hints of what God is about to do, but there is so much more to come. You say we, you know, we'd say we, any of us who are Christians here tonight, we would say, yes, I believe that God is faithful to me, to his, to his covenant with me, to his people now. Yeah, isn't it our experience, to be honest, that the, the kind of the pharaohs, if you like, of our day still wield seemingly terrifying power? They intimidate us. The, the dogmatic scientific theory that has no place for God. You know, heard, heard Jake say it, didn't we, in the interview? Science is Lord at Imperial University. The university department that pours scorn on Christianity that makes us fearful and tempted not to speak up in, in lecture theatres about what we believe. The view of religion in politics that says, yeah, 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 it's all very nice. It's all very nice for you to have your religion as long as you do it in private. And don't you dare be as radical to talk about God in the public sphere. The lure of the materialistic good life that tempts us to be more concerned about our careers than about our souls. Oh, we know God is faithful, but yet the pharaohs still look powerful. Moreover, we believe that God will be faithful to his covenant with us, uh, but we still feel the ever-present battle of sin if we're Christians. But yet, like the Israelites in Exodus 1 and 2, we have begun to glimpse something of what God is doing. Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And since he said those words, empires have crumbled. Ideologies have arisen, been found to be empty and vanished to nothing. But the fame of Christ, the risen Lord, has grown and grown and grown. Over 2,000 years, person after person after person has come to worship Jesus as the Lord of all and to find forgiveness of sins. Like the Israelites in our passage today, we have begun to glimpse what it means for God to be faithful to his covenant. But like in Exodus 1 and 2, there's so much more to come. One day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. One day Christ and Christ alone will be recognized as the God of all power. One day every knee, that is every knee, will bow at Jesus' name. One day Jesus will lead those of us who have trusted in him, who have loved him over and above the other small g gods of this age. He will lead us up out of this world and into the world where there is no more mourning or crying or sin or pain. As we begin Exodus, God is confidently and compassionately announcing himself as the exclusive object of our worship. Jesus says to us tonight, have no other gods before me.
Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this glimpse of you that we begin to see now in these early chapters of Exodus. We praise you that you are the God of all power. We praise you that your fame will be known. We thank you for what we have seen of that already in the 2,000 years since your son died and rose again. And we look forward to that day when one day every knee will bow at his name. Meanwhile, Father, help us to be people who love him over and above every other small g-god of this world. Appreciating the good things of life only under the Lordship of Christ, only putting him first. Amen.